This episode is brought to you by Philly Gemstones. A lot of what surrounds lab diamonds is that, you know, yes, they're not digging a hole in the ground, but they take a lot of energy, etc., to produce. So it's not a clear-cut thing between the two. I'm always surprised by new things that I see in the diamond world, and I'm probably at this point in time more optimistic than I have been for quite a long time. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. Today we're going to talk about the future of diamonds. I'm really happy to be joined by London-based American Stephen Lucia, the De Beers Group's Executive President for Brands and Consumer Markets, who's been selling diamonds and all the dreams and aspirations that go with them for nearly 40 years. He's leaving his role and remaining as a strategic advisor and chairman of the Natural Diamond Council, which is a resource and authority on mine diamonds. And he was the recent winner of the 2002 GEM Award for Lifetime Achievement. Stephen, Lucia, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, great to be here. Really looking forward to it, Carol. Where are you joining us from today? Very uniquely. I'm, I'm here in London. <laughs> and with him, we have another Stephen, London-based Kent-born Stephen Webster, MBE, who's also been a seller of Diamond Dreams and the jewels he's created over his 40-year career. Stephen has put using responsibly sourced materials at the heart of his brand, which was why I was very keen for him to come back to If Jewels Could Talk and join us today. And Stephen will be telling us about his new diamond collection launching this summer with diamonds created in a carbon negative process, which he says feels like the future. He was the recent winner of the Grosvenor Britain and Ireland Sustainability Award. And we're talking about the future of diamonds here and sustainability and responsible ethical practices are really crucial to that. So thank you, Stephen, for joining us. Hi, Carol. Hi there. And where are you at the moment? Where are you joining us from? Amsterdam. And um, I'm staying in the uh, the design suite of jeweller B.B. van der Walden. And um, it's an extraordinary place. Behind me, you'll see this massive necklace. Um, I wasn't aware of the fact that she was a sculptor before she was a jeweler. So um, all around the place is this sort of expanded jewellery, this being one. So I thought we'd make a nice backdrop, even though the listeners can't see. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Stephen, we want to talk about the future of diamonds. But traditionally, where have been the biggest markets in the world for, for diamonds? Do you know, it's been quite a changing world for diamonds over, call it the last 10 or 15 years, because... If you dial back into history, you know, diamonds were really dominant in two markets, uh, the U.S. and Japan, which together accounted for something like two thirds of the, of the world's consumption. But we've seen some big changes over the past couple of decades. And really, the, I think the big story is the continued strength of the American market, 
American consumers' love of diamonds is, is probably as strong as it ever has been. And, and today, you know, America accounts for over half of the total consumption of diamonds in the world, which is just, I think, remarkable for what people thought was, you know, a mature market uh, 20 years ago. But I guess the other part of that story is the emergence of China and to a lesser degree, India, but particularly China. You know, if we go back to 1990, had zero diamond business, no stores, no product in the market, and, and no awareness really of, of what diamonds were amongst Chinese consumers. And, you know, today, the greater China market, you know, accounts for, for close to 20% of the world, and probably much higher percentage for the big global brands. And so it's, uh, that's probably the big story of the last decade, the emergence of China as a, as a number two consumer market for diamonds in the world. And I guess the sky's the limit there, isn't it? You know, once you raise that percentage, it could be just huge. Yeah, and, the, and, we, and we continue to see strong growth from China. If you look at it, say, over a five-year period, there are always ups and downs along the way, particularly with COVID uh, impact and lockdowns. But fundamentally, uh, there are so many what are called tier two, tier three, tier four cities. You know, a tier four city still has like five billion people. So they're big places. And there it's still, uh, you know, diamonds are still um, sort of a new product relative to the gold jewelry, which is the dominant one, where if you go to the big tier A's, the Shanghai's and the, and the Beijing's, you know, it's a diamond world. So we know that there's long term opportunity to continue to scale. And at some point, China will rival the US in terms of, of uh, global consumption. Stephen, I know you've spent a good deal of the last 40 years with your brand on an aeroplane traveling the world, going to um, different um, gemstone fairs, meeting different diamond dealers, customers around the world. I mean, does this reflect your experience as well as to your consumer? Um, well, I think for us, you know, we, I, I kind of built the business in America. So, you know, that, that, was, that was our number one market for forever kind of thing. And there I would have sold my jewellery, which, you know, has not so much been diamond focused, but it's always had diamonds in it. Um, and I think for us, the biggest change came probably 20 years ago when the Russian market opened up. And because of my family, I had like connections to the people, if you like, which led to us opening a boutique in Moscow very early, like tw nearly 20 years ago. And that just sort of skyrocketed, I think, for us. It was uh, something where, you know, very, very quickly we were selling in places that previously I'd never really heard of, like Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan and you name it, around what was the old Soviet Union. And I think that that, was, that just, you know, covered all of our growth. It just was uh, so fast. And then, of course, that changed very quickly two months ago, um, where my store in Kiev doesn't exist and my store in Moscow, like all brands, we can't deal with anymore. So, A, a quick aside, what, did, what have you done with that store in Moscow? Well, the store exists because it's within Zoom, which is like Selfridges. It's a boutique inside, um, a, you know, a big department store, but we can't deal with them. We can't supply goods. We can't get paid. We've stopped business and we stopped business like two months ago. As for our, our Ukrainian store, my three members of staff are now refugees. So I know we're not really wanting to get focused on this, but it sort of shows actually it's how things can change. So that's sort of been a little bit of a, okay, we weren't expecting that. Back to America kind of thing, but we never, we never pulled out of America. So America's always been that sort of stable market for us. We, we have made um, some headway into China. 
We opened a boutique in Beijing in um, during COVID, which I suppose I, I've got very little I can kind of go on really as far as trends go, because pretty much since we opened, the place has been very restricted for movement of people in 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 all the big cities, but definitely in Beijing and Shanghai. The the interesting thing with it was we we seem to be selling lots of the same thing, which was a a diamond and gold piece. So we know color in it, which was kind of interesting. I think it was probably because somewhere along the line, um, some sort of influence had, had happened that that meant that people came looking for that particular product. But I'm assuming that once mobility starts again, that that will change. It's too early days for us. But at your flagship store in Mount Street in London, are people coming in? Are they asking for diamonds at the moment or are they looking more at colour? Um, it's mixed, but we we never had a category that, you know, would fall under bridal. We, we never really carried it. I mean, may, may have been to our detriment, I don't know, but only um, during lockdown time, I launched a thing called the No Regrets Chapel, which which actually gave a home to our now new bridal sort of uh, pieces, which... It's been very interesting. It is predominantly diamonds. I get a huge amount of same-sex relationships, which I don't know if I was expecting or not, but it's so disproportionate <laughs> that it's that it's really interesting. I, I've heard from some of my clients that people feel like this is a place where they're very welcome. There's going to be products that, that they feel it works for them. So that's been really cool, actually. But it doesn't matter what the relationship, it's predominantly diamond, diamond and gold, diamond and platinum jewellery. So, so yes, the demand's there. And Stephen Lucia, so US is the, the major market. And do you think it's no coincidence that that was where you launched the extraordinary slogan that is still the tagline globally, a diamond is forever, which you launched in 1947, basically propelling every American girl to ask for a diamond engagement ring. Yeah, I mean, that's where the, the De Beers marketing all started. And I mean, it's an interesting story. It was really a, a visionary leader of De Beers, a, a man named Harry Oppenheimer, who was later to become our chairman for many years, but in those days was in effect the son of the chairman. And he often said that probably he never would have got the budget to start the marketing initiative uh, if he if he weren't the son of the chairman. And that they were in effect, you know, giving him a little bit of opportunity that wouldn't have happened otherwise. But actually, if you look at the modern luxury goods industry, he was clearly a visionary because he was really the first in the world to appreciate that you could influence demand for a luxury product through what we now know to be the modern tools of marketing. And prior to that, there was a sort of an accepted wisdom that if you advertised luxury goods, that they would no longer be considered luxury because why would you need to advertise them? And that somehow advertising diminished the uh, appeal of a luxury product. You know, we look at that now in the, uh, with the modern luxury goods industry and, and you know, Monsieur Arno and, and think how silly. But back then it was really the accepted wisdom. And he broke that mold and he went off to America and, uh, and found an ad agency then in Philadelphia, uh, NWR, and started that campaign. And it was only probably five or six years after that all started that Frances Garrity, again, probably quite a role model in her own as a female copywriter in what was in those days, a male world of, of advertising, wrote that line, Adamant is forever. 
And I think to the great credit of De Beers, they haven't tinkered with it over the long period of time because it so much encapsulates in a few words everything that a diamond means. It means that promise of eternal love. It means a product that will endure as a store of value over time. And it means a product that will never go out of fashion. In effect, you know, this concept of eternal elegance, which is what diamonds represent. And all that is summed up in that fantastic line. And that's where the marketing all started. It was only in America, really, up until the the sort of 1970s and 80s, when De Beers took that model, uh, you know, to other countries around the world to build the industry that that we have today. But what has really changed is anyone buying diamonds really now has to be encouraged to ask where that diamonds come from. And Stephen Webster, recently you created the diamond engagement ring for Megan Fox, given by Machine Gun Kelly when they got engaged. Has the message got through to celebrities because they kind of lead the way? Did they want to know where their diamond came from? Interestingly, the only question I got asked was where the emerald came from, (laughs) which... um... It could have gone either way, I guess. You know, I had I had an answer because I have to have an answer for for every question, if you like, con- concerning you know sustainability, responsibility of our our business. But yes, it does come up. Um, in that particular case, it was the emeralds. But I think people now it's not a hundred percent, no way. But it's it's a very high percentage of people are interested in where elements of what it is that they're buying have come from including diamonds. I mean, as we all know, probably the first questions were ever surrounding diamonds. And, you know, it was probably when the industry, you know, first had to start looking at itself and and the processes, etc. And I think, you know, we are maybe 15 years along the line or from whenever that that first started. And and there's been a lot of changes. And I think there was that sort of instant knee jerk to that, you know, that every diamond was a blunt diamond. And then that had to be shown that that wasn't the case. And then, you know, we're, we're putting in processes like Kimberley process to, to ensure that that's not the case. But I think then there's also, you, you could get down to the real nitty gritty, you know, of, of, you know, this sort of impact on the planet and et cetera. And I think, you know, you have to be really straight with people. You know, you give the answers that you can as truthfully as you can. And, you know, I, I think we, we sort of, our sort of mantra is that we're, we're not a sustainable business, but we follow a sustainable model, which is pursuing, as the world is pursuing more sustainability in everything we do. And that's, that's you know, that can be to the extreme, if you like, of a question or just a general question, oh, where, where does this diamond come from? Well, I have to say there was a moment there when people were talking about sustainability, people are always going back to conflict diamonds, people were talking about lab-grown diamonds. There was a minute combined with the fact people were confronting colonial pasts that I thought diamonds might be cancelled. And Stephen Lucia, did this ever worry De Beers, this sort of accumulation of people's questions and confusion about mind stones. I mean, it's something clearly that we're we're always very conscious of. We have the, I think, the benefit of the reality being dramatically different, and I think that gives us always great confidence because the actual story of the positive impact today of diamonds in places like Botswana, uh, South Africa, Namibia, Canada is very compelling. You know, our task very much is is one of being able to communicate that effectively. And when we do, we know people not only are at ease, but actually they feel very positive about the diamond that they that they own. But I think, you know, it, it's interesting listening to, to Stephen talk about the impact uh, or the questions he gets from customers. Because I think 
you know, I'm a great believer in that idea that change is something that happens really slow until it doesn't. And you hit that tipping point and then it goes rapidly. And I think when it comes to the idea of supply transparency, for lack of a better word, that it has been something that has been building slowly. It started a little bit with, uh, you know, decades ago now with the Kimberley process. The Kimberley process is a process that goes back now more than 20 years. It's actually a, a UN government, not an industry initiative. But it was one that was De Beers in particular were very involved in, in bringing together the UN and all of their government representatives to develop a system that would make sure that all diamonds were what are now called Kimberley compliant. And that means that the diamonds, as they're exported from their producer countries, those countries have to be Kimberley compliant, meaning that the diamonds that get exported have played no role in, in effect, the conflicts that the phrase conflict diamond comes from, the conflicts back 20 years ago uh, in those countries. And so, you know, it's a good system, but it's it, it doesn't solve all of the world's problems, huh? but it does solve very effectively that one. But again, I think it's not on its own enough. And we've seen, I think, spurred on firstly by sustainability question, and particularly around, you know, carbon neutrality and carbon impact. Uh, in terms of climate change, if you need to know your carbon footprint, you need to know the carbon footprint of the products that you buy. And that's particularly uh, important for some of the bigger brands in the luxury goods industry who need to know that. So they, they need to know about source transparency for that purpose. And that, I think, provided more momentum to this idea. And I think now we're at the tipping point because, you know, the war in Ukraine has brought into very stark contrast the, you know, the issue of where do my diamonds come from, given that Russia is a, is a major producer. I think that in and of itself will be the, the tipping point that changes this world and that as we go forward in the years to come, it'll become commonplace that certainly in, in the first instance, retailers will know where their diamonds have come from. And then over time, I think consumers will want to as well. I don't think that they're ever going to seek out diamonds from one country or, or another, but I think that they will want to feel good about the diamond that they have and knowing where it's come from will help them feel that. So I think it's an unstoppable trend now. Do you know, I thought when I visited years ago, I came um, to the um, Arapa mine in Botswana and had a look and I thought actually it might get to the point where people did want to as much as somebody said oh this is a deflawless diamond or this is you know a fantastic marquise cut they would say you know what my diamond comes from Arapa it's this fantastic mine where the workers are so well it's run by a woman and it would become like a sort of mark of a badge of honor that you knew exactly who had mined this stone and that it was completely traceable and sustainable and supporting the country where it had come from. I think a decade from now, we'll look back at that and and it'll seem obvious that you need to know about something that is so precious to you, so unique, you know, each one a billion years old with its own history that you're going to want to know. And it'll just be part of the process. And there are new tools to enable us to do that. It was quite difficult to do that 10 years ago, but particularly with the developments of things like blockchain, and the technology now that allows that process to happen easily, I think it's the path we're headed in. It's just a matter of how long is it going to take to make that the normal part of business. But in De Beers' view, that that's where we're headed and that's what we're intending to be able to provide for all the diamonds that come from uh, from any of the mines that we, that we run. 
And Stephen Webster, you've worked with Labyrinth Stones, I know, in um, different collections, not for your brand, but in different collections. And I mean, what's your view about that? And do you think that young people are feeling that that's a more ethical choice than a mine diamond? So, yeah, I've only worked, I did one project actually with uh, Swarovski um, with using their their diamonds, their created diamonds. Um, so we've never used them in... in um, essentially just a Stephen Webster collection. I've always been very interested in it. I mean, anything that involves technology moves at a pace that, you know, most other things can't. And I I think that there was a sort of one particular path I was following with the Lab Diamonds, which has now been released, which is Sky Diamonds, which I've actually produced in Stroud in England, which interested me anyway. So tell us about Sky Diamonds. The producer is a guy called Dale Vince. He's, he's definitely eco-warrior, but a very, very successful one. And his company, Ecotricity, are one of the biggest sort of green producers of energy for the UK. And he's just a radical kind of thinker and, and very, very smart. And so... He came to me like six years ago with the very beginnings of an idea of something that could be, that could produce in a laboratory a diamond that was genuinely carbon negative. So I was very interested in that because I think, you know, a lot of what surrounds lab diamonds is that, you know, yes, they're not digging a hole in the ground, but they they take a lot of energy, et cetera, to produce. So it's not a clear cut thing between the two. And, and, and for me, too much opaqueness still surrounds a lot of where the lab is. What does it mean? You know, so I've avoided it, but because I I could actually go to Stroud, of which I've done many times now on the train, and watch the progress of this. I can see this is genuine. So it's in somewhat sort of alchemy. You know, he's extracting the carbon from the air, spent a fortune on on equipment to do that, which is generated by 100% green energy, which he generates. So it's a completely different reason of why someone like myself may want to work with a diamond that's come from a laboratory. I would be very careful about how I did that because it's got to be really clearly separated. (laughs) I don't want any confusion. I mean, you know, this is where the market can be confused because there isn't always the same separation that goes on. And I think, you know, these are reasons why we've we've resisted as well as all the things I mentioned. But I do find something like that, that particular project, I don't, there are others that are, uh, you know, sort of building at the same time, but he's quite advanced, that I find exciting. How could I not? You know, I mean, it, it produces something that's a diamond. And I, I suppose there's different reasons why someone would wear diamonds that are not natural diamonds. And I think even... With De Beers, you know, a producer diamond that's a lab diamond that's for a different purpose. It's 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 considered to be more of a fashion purpose rather than your meaningful, you know, let's say your engagement ring, these kind of things, these things that mark, you know, life where I feel there's every reason why people still want that to be a natural diamond. But, you know, if you're wearing 15 different piercings in your ear and you're in your 20s and you really like the sparkle, Hey, honestly, I I feel that there, <laughs> there's a reason why you might be looking at both, you know. So so I completely get it. I I can't I get that point, but then don't we have to get the message to the young people that actually that's disposable? They're buying something that essentially you're saying they will dispose of because as they get older they're not going to wear it, and it's fashion led, and we have to sort of all of us now be aware that we're not buying disposable fashion. Well, I disagree with that. I think, I don't think they're disposable. Young people are wearing more jewellery now than I've ever seen 
It's, you know, I mean, literally, I'm in Amsterdam today and I was with a lot of younger people yesterday and, I mean, they're just decked, right, in jewellery and, and, and most of it's real. And so the opportunities are there for the jeweller, obviously. I don't think any of those people want to think what they're wearing is disposable. If it's gold and it's a diamond, whether it's a natural diamond or it's a, a lab diamond, because that's what we're talking about, I don't think either one will be looked at as a disposable item. I think... You know, it can be recycled. It can be done the same as whatever people are wearing now rather than it being disposed of. Yeah, but and do you think that that is like their starter stone and then they want to upgrade as they recycle and maybe replace it with a mind stone? Do they have that kind of mindset? Well, I'm not in the mind yet, but I can only go by my daughters who are 22 and 30, uh, their crowd. I wouldn't say yet. Any of those people are particularly leaning towards a lab diamond, right? They're not. That's not in the conversation I'm hearing. So what do they want? They want, well, they want a real diamond, a natural diamond. But I, I suppose things like this sky diamond, which is, to me, a very different story to um, a slightly more opaque sort of lab-created stone. I'm not saying that they're all bad, but this one is a story that I've followed and I know. I think there would be interest. You know, you know what I mean? I, I can't imagine they'd just reject it. So I, I feel this is where I, I suppose, for the years since it even entered the realm of this, like, lab diamond that matched, if you like, a lot of the qualities of a natural diamond. A lot, not all. Then you felt, OK, this is not going to go away. And, and I don't think it is going to go away. But I do feel, you know, something that Stephen had just said and I'd mentioned earlier, you know, we've just seen... 20% of the world's production of diamonds is now not accessible or it shouldn't be by anybody because it comes from Russia and it's part of the sanctions. Now, I don't know about the conversation of how and why and if they will ever infiltrate the system, but let's just say they're a no-no. That's 20% of the world's supply is gone. The demand is massive. Where is all this going to get satisfied? You know, and I, I feel this could be the same with coloured stones as well. You know, the demand seems to outstrip the supply. Even if it's not right now, it will do. And I, I think, you know, things like this conversation with the lab diamonds, you know, maybe that satisfies an element of, of that demand. What do you think about that, Stephen, Lucia? Yeah, you know, Carol, it's, it's such an interesting question. And I think the challenge that I have, and as you know, De Beers has its Lightbox laboratory-grown diamond brand. So we're involved in, in, in both segments. And you know, I, I think at the moment we're in that era of fog and misperception and misunderstanding. And we'll come out of that in time. And what it takes, I think, is just a lot more honesty on the part of everyone in our industry to communicate the differences between the two products. And there, there are some really fundamental differences. And it doesn't make one product good or another one bad. It just makes them different. And pretending that they're not is, is the challenge now. You know, you asked in the beginning about, you know, what is the perception of lab-grown diamonds when it comes to things like the environment? And I think the perception is that they're somehow better. It's not the reality. Most lab-grown diamonds come from China. This is where they're, they're manufactured, the vast majority. And we know that those factories are, you know, coal-fired energy sources, and there's nothing green about them. But it comes with that perception. So I think we need a little bit more honesty on, on that front. And then secondly, the big difference is the cost. There's a fundamental difference in cost. You know, bringing a natural diamond to the world is a very expensive process and getting more expensive, not less expensive, as some of the world's big mines go deeper and deeper. And that gives them, you know, there's an inherent rarity and an inherent preciousness and value 
that comes with that. That's just a fact. And a lab-grown diamond is a very inexpensive thing to make relative to a natural. I mean, you can pump out one carat lab-growns for somewhere around south of $400 for a carat. And that's just a fact. That doesn't make them bad or wrong, but it does cause me some concern if I see them sold for $4,000 when it only costs a few hundred. So I think we just need to get to the place where there's understanding, they find their different markets and they live in a somewhat different world. And I agree with Stephen, I think they'll be around as a product, but they just need to find their own niche and that will take a little bit more time. As you say, as diamonds are so expensive to get the technology needed to get them out of the earth, and if that becomes prohibitive, if there is more demand outweighs supply, will lab-grown diamonds fill that gap? I think there are a lot of things that could fill that gap. But, you know, I've heard I've heard this story for a long time that, uh, you know, that eventually there won't be enough natural diamonds. And somehow we do manage to find them as demand has continued to, to grow. But demand is very, very strong at the moment. And certainly in the short term, you know, the world has to reorient around the Russian supply. You know, there are countries that are very happy to buy Russian diamonds. The sanctions are largely Western market, Europe and America. And I think we'll see diamonds, particularly from Southern Africa and Canada, flow into those markets. And there are other markets like China and the Middle East and perhaps India who may well be happy to continue to buy the Russians. So I think we'll see that sort of splitting up around the world in a different way. Fundamentally, you know, diamonds are a product that need to do good. They need to have positive impact particularly in the countries where they come from, which on the whole, you know, is the developing world, even though they're largely consumed in the developed world. And we need to look at how we can always maximize the benefit for those countries and those communities, you know, that are in effect the source of diamonds. So it's this massive global business, but you have to localize the message, the diamond message for particular markets. So how do you do that? Do you focus a message in India, a message in China, a different one in the US. Yeah, it's it's a mix, to be honest, when we think about that, because the core of what we call the diamond dream, the core thing that diamonds mean to people is pretty universal. So all over the world, diamonds are valued uh, and appreciated because they're you know inherently precious, they're inherently rare, they're a store of value, and they're a symbol of love. And that's as true in, in China or India as it is in you know America or the UK. So those elements are quite common, but the form that they take is quite different in different countries. So now blockchains played a big part in people being the traceability for retailers. But you're working on a code of origin, aren't you, for for consumers? Yeah, we believe that the future of particularly gemstones is that you'll need to tell the story on its entire journey from where it started life uh, until it got onto your finger. Historically, that's just not been logistically possible to do you know, with all the diamonds that are discovered each year. But now with the technology, both blockchain, but also the technology that De Beers has developed to be able to photograph and re-identify diamonds through that process, we can now do it. We have that capability to tell that story. For us, it depends a little bit on the jeweler. I think the big global brands, I think they want to know where their diamonds have come from. So their brand can stand proudly behind 
you know, the positive impact of that. And for other consumers, I think they just like the story. It adds, I think, to this reality that diamonds are extraordinarily unique things. Each one is different. Each one uh, has its own story, but we haven't been able to tell all of that before. And I think it's quite an exciting initiative. We, as we say, we call it the code of origin. We're something we're going to be rolling out now over uh, over the coming months and years until we get to the point where literally all of our diamonds will come with that story. To me, I think it's just inherently part of the future. So the future of the diamond is assured in our lives. Do you know, it's, I'm always surprised by new things that I see in the diamond world. And I'm probably at this point in time more optimistic than I have been for quite a long time for two big reasons. Historically, if you take America, our biggest market in the world, Historically, where did it all come from? The diamond engagement ring and other gifts of love, anniversary bands and eternity rings and that core market. But today, for the first time, that's actually become the minority market. Women buying diamonds for themselves have eclipsed the engagement ring market in America in 2021. You know, we're just at the beginning of that story. So women buying diamonds for themselves is like a whole new market, which has come to the uh, American diamond market. And secondly, men. And I think, you know, Stephen was talking a little bit about that earlier when you're talking about young people being very jewelry orientated. And if you look at teenagers, there's a lot of jewelry. And most interestingly, you look at teenage men, there's a lot of jewelry. You know, it's largely inexpensive jewelry because they haven't got jobs yet. Uh, they haven't earning incomes, but it'll come. And um, my son, who is 25, my oldest son, probably about two years ago, asked me, said, Dad, do you have a tennis bracelet? And I said, what do you mean do I have a tennis bracelet? He said, I'd really like to wear a tennis could, could you, you must have one that you can loan me. And I thought, geez, he wants to wear a tennis bracelet. He saw nothing feminine about wearing a tennis bracelet. I did think we'll probably have to rename it because that's probably not the right name for the way in which he wants to use it. There's no sense in their minds that diamonds are a female product. And even things that we would think were traditionally female design, very happy. So it's likely to be chains and bangles, I think more than, than rings. Uh, there's a lot of neckwear and there's a lot of wristwear. And our job is to, I think, rethink the way in which we create design. I mean, if I go to most jewelers and I ask for the men's category, it's not what the young men want in the store today. So we haven't really developed the right product for them, but I think we can see it's coming and really smart designers will get there. Probably it will start with more niche and smaller designers, and then the big guys will follow once they see the path. That's what I think is, is so exciting that we've got our traditional market, but there are huge opportunities in these, in these new segments that are gonna make, I think, jewelry a very powerful part of people's lives going forward. Stephen Webster, what's the future of diamonds for you? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I, I can't see, um, like, you know, you, you'd mentioned, I had some concerns about the fact that diamonds could, could be canceled. There is no evidence of that. I feel that, you know, all the time that the industry now feels to me like a way more creative, exciting industry in the last 20 years than it was previously. And I think the you know, all the time people are creative and they're using diamonds, they're using all the preciousness that fine jewelry requires. I think there will be demand for it. I can't I can't see at the moment, certainly not in the, let's say, the next five years or something, it's silly looking much beyond that, that suddenly jewellery is not going to be part of every single look. It's so crazy. I mean, it was, it was, it was sort of part of one look <laughs> at one time. And that, and I'm, I'm talking about this from a, from a, it's fashion, but I think it's, 
it's got more longevity than just fashion, is that people now enjoy the accessory of, of jewelry and that's on that side. And then with the emotional side, I can't, I cannot think of anything replacing it. So, so it, it feels like there is a, a long life left. Do you think there's still part of the dream that every person wants, aspires to own a diamond? I do. I know it seems a bit romantic, but what the hell, you know, it, it really does. I still really love the process of creating you know, designing a piece of diamond jewellery for people that's marking these big occasions of their life. And it never stops. I'm still doing it, you know, and, and, and it's brilliant. And it doesn't matter if it's a rock star or just someone on the street. It really doesn't matter. You get you get caught up in that. So it's a dream. Of course it is, yeah. And Stephen Lucia, can you reassure us that enough diamonds will be found in the future? to meet the demand? I certainly hope so. The big De Beers mines have decades to run, both in Botswana and in South Africa, our big mine, the Venetia mine in South Africa, which we're building an underground mine to extend its life now for many decades to come. But the key, of course, is finding the new ones. It's very difficult to find a diamond mine. We keep looking. Where are you looking? Largely Southern Africa and the Northwest of Canada, but Southern Africa, for sure. Angola is very prospective and with the new government uh, policies in Angola. I think it's a place where De Beers, for one, are, are very happy now to, to go back and operate in and we're exploring there. And that's probably a likely place. There are probably more mines to be found in Botswana and South Africa. And we're you know building new vessels for offshore recovery of diamonds in, on the Namibian coast. So I wouldn't worry too much. I think we'll be okay for, uh, for the rest of our lives. So diamonds for everyone is, is safe. The future's good. It is indeed. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Bye, Stephen. You're back on a plane. Are you on a plane every day of your life? Not quite, but I am today. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwalton.com slash podcasts. And if you liked it, please share it any way that you can and subscribe to our podcast feed on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcast. And we'd love a rating and a comment. Please join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. And this is an If Jewels Could Talk exclusive we are talking to the Deputy Surveyor of the Queen's Works of Art and Jewellery, Caroline de Guito, who's giving us an exclusive tour of the jewels Her Majesty will be exhibiting at Windsor Castle and Buckingham Palace. So thank you for listening today and please join us then. Goodbye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, Illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton. <laughs>